Acts chapter 1. When, uh, when you tell the story of history, uh, that story is always going to have main characters. Now, um, historians argue over to what extent history is a matter of uh, great men who make an impact on the world and just these very remarkable people, or whether it's more these sort of impersonal social forces that are moving and then certain men happen to be at the right place at the right time. But in any case, a good way into history is to study the pivotal figures of history. For example... If you want to understand the Greco-Roman world, if you want to have a good handle on how the world got to be like it was in the first century in the time of the New Testament, reading a biography of Alexander the Great is an awfully good start uh, of exploring that world. Uh, If you want to understand the Protestant Reformation, a biography on Martin Luther will go a long way to, to teach you about that. Biography of George Washington is a great way into the American Revolution, or Abraham Lincoln for the Civil War, or Winston Churchill for World War II. But inevitably, when you read the stories of these great men, you're also struck by all the other people around them who made them who they are. So to understand the era, it's good to understand the influential person of the era. But to understand the influential person of the era, you run across the stories of a hundred other people who influenced the influential person. Does that make sense? So, for example, Abraham Lincoln isn't Abraham Lincoln without Stephen Douglas. He's not that. He isn't sharp in the way that he is. He isn't uh, become the man that he does without that man. Well, we could say the same about about the story of the early church. That's what the book of Acts is. It's the story of the early church. You can't tell that story without the stories of two great men, Peter first and then Paul. So one of the final things Jesus says to his disciples before he ascends back to heaven to the Father's right hand is recorded in Acts 1.8. Look at what Jesus says, one of the final things He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What that is, is a summary of the book of Acts. Because in the first 12 chapters of Acts, the story is told of Peter taking the lead in bringing the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. The first three places he mentions. Peter is taking the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, But then, starting in Acts 13, you have the story of Paul bringing the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the end of the earth. That's what Acts is about. So to understand the early church, you must understand something of Peter and Paul. They are the influential figures, humanly speaking, in this era. But you know what you need to understand Peter and Paul? You need a hundred other people who influence the influential person. And so what I'm going to do this morning is to speak about one of those people. Not Peter, not Paul, but actually someone who influenced both of these men to a pretty extreme degree. His name is John Mark. So what I want to do is to run through this era of history, the early church, which is told through the experiences of Peter and Paul. But I want to zoom in on the effect that this man, John Mark, had on them. He is a minor character in the New Testament story. But I think we could make the case that just as Lincoln wouldn't have been Lincoln without Douglas, Paul isn't Paul without John Mark. And I dare say Peter's work isn't complete without John Mark. So what I want to do is to break down the John Mark story as we find it in the New Testament in about four different acts, four different scenes where we find John Mark uh, passing through. So we begin in Acts chapter 12, turn with me there, with some auspicious beginnings. An interesting beginning, a promising beginning, 
for, for John Mark. It's, it's interesting. Um, he actually first appears in the Bible at the very dividing point of Acts. The, the final story in which Peter is sort of the main character, Peter's about to fade from the narrative, and Paul, who we've already met by this point, but Paul is about to ascend the stage, and right at this turning point in Acts, here is John Mark for the first time. So in verse 1 of the chapter, Acts 12 and verse 1, it begins with the phrase, about that time. So what time was that? Well, Acts 11.27 says that some prophets had come from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of these prophets foretells a great famine that will put, it, put the already poor brethren in Judea into deeper desperation. And so these Antioch disciples collect money, and they send it to the Jerusalem brethren to be distributed, and they entrust Barnabas and Saul with that task. And so when we read in 12.1 about that time, that's the time we're talking about. So at the same time that's happening in Antioch, the events of Acts chapter 12 are happening. And Acts chapter 12 begins with the martyrdom of James, the apostle James. Herod Agrippa I didn't particularly like the Jews. Um, He wasn't a Jew, but he knew it was to his advantage to court their favor, to appease a tyrannical majority. And so he figures out that arresting some from this strange new sect called the Christians, he figures out if he arrests and mistreats them, it's going to win him uh, bigger approval ratings. So he does that. And then he arrests James, the brother of John, and he kills him, the first apostle martyred in Acts 12. And when that goes over well, he proceeds then to arrest the apostle Peter. And so Peter is under arrest, soon to be executed, that's the plan. But verse 5 of the chapter says, the church, meanwhile, was praying for him fervently, and in verse 7, the prayers are answered. So we'll pick up the story here, Acts 12 and verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, next to Peter, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak round you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know though what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came uh, to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Now Peter came to himself and said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and has rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And that brings us to verse 12. When he realized this, that is when he realized it wasn't a dream and he was free, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many are gathered, were gathered and were praying. So this is the first time we meet John Mark in this context. He's a guy with two names. That's not uncommon in that day and time. John is a Jewish name. Mark is a Roman name. Often people would have two names, one sort of um, bearing testimony to their sort of ethnic background and then one sort of official kind of government name for getting along in the Roman economy. And we're told his mom owns the house where the church was gathered in prayer for Peter. Now, the fact that it's her house, that it's identified as hers, most think means she's probably a widow. But here is this woman, Mary, with a name that just about every other woman in the Gospels has. And so to distinguish this Mary from all the other Marys, we're told she's the mother of John Mark. At this point, John Mark is totally nondescript. He's basically here as a way to identify his mother. This is how we meet, meet John Mark in Scripture, incidentally. 
I think we can say, though, he does have a connection to Peter, even if it's a loose and indefinite one at this point. But I think he knows Peter because, I say that because, when Peter is free from the prison and when the angel leaves him and he comes to himself, he knows to go to that house, the house of Mary. Nobody needed to take him there, which probably meant he'd been there before. May have been a meeting place of the church. Peter may have preached there many a time. If that's the case, it means Peter knows John Mark already, and this is not the last time when we see these two men connected together. So just put a peg there, connection between John Mark and Peter. Well, we come later in, in Acts chapter 12 to the story of Paul. So at the end of, uh, of Acts chapter 12, Barnabas and Saul, they've come from Antioch to Jerusalem with that gift to bring relief to the Judean brethren because of the famine. They deliver it to Jerusalem, and then they return to Antioch. Only when they return to Antioch, they bring with them someone new. This is Acts chapter 12 and verse 25. Acts 12 and verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So here they bring with them this nondescript young guy. Why would they do that? Well, it's here that I clue you into the fact that in Colossians 4, a text we're going to look at later, in Colossians 4 and verse 10, Paul calls Mark the cousin of Barnabas. The cousin of Barnabas. So Barnabas knew him. Apparently Barnabas trusted him. Perhaps Barnabas suggests to Paul they could bring him along to Antioch. It'd be good for John Mark. It'd be good for us, perhaps useful for us. They arrive back in Antioch. They remain there for some amount of time. Until Acts 13 and verse 1, they prepare to leave Antioch. This is Acts 13 and verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, the member of the court of the Herod of Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them This is the inception of the first missionary journey. That's what you've just read. This is how the first missionary journey gets started. Paul and Barnabas are going to travel to the ends of the earth. You remember Jesus' words? Go to the ends of the earth. That's what they're going to begin to do. And so they go down to the port. They then sail to the island of Cyprus. And when they reach the city of Salamis on the east coast of that island, they begin to preach in the synagogues in that area. And in in verse 5 of the chapter, look who's there with them. Acts 13 and verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. That's John Mark. Sometimes he's just John. Sometimes he's just Mark. Sometimes he's called John who's called Mark. That's John Mark. He is here called an assistant or a helper or a minister. He had apparently proven useful enough to them in Antioch that they decided to take him along on this trip with them. So that's the beginning of the John Mark story, the first couple places we meet him in the Bible. And I just want us to notice a few things. It's a very promising beginning for John Mark. I mean, you're on the ground floor of the early church. You know, your house or your mom's house plays host to Peter and the Jerusalem disciples. It's sort of a hub for a lot of the activity in those chapters. And then Barnabas and Saul are commissioned by the Holy Spirit. Well, first they go to Antioch and they say, let's bring you along. And then they're commissioned by the Holy Spirit to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And they decide, you know, it would be a good idea to bring along this young, young kid with them. That's the beginning of the John Mark story. Well, if you keep reading in Acts 13, it takes a turn. Where we have an auspicious beginning, but then an inauspicious second act. Uh, we find John Mark 
to be something like a dividing deserter. So if you read the story of what happened on Cyprus in the next few verses, um, you quickly learn that this trip is not going to be a little vacation for them. There's nothing easy about it. Um, It's tough travel in the first place. There's nothing comfortable about traveling in the ancient world. And then when they get to these places, almost nowhere are they welcomed with open arms. For example, in, in Cyprus, they run across a guy named Elamis, a sorcerer, a magician, who, Peter, uh, who Paul calls a son of the devil. Well, this is what happens when it's time to set sail from Cyprus to go back to the mainland, to the south coast of Asia Minor. This is Acts 13 and verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. And so Luke matter-of-factly says, John Mark leaves. We don't know exactly why. Um, Luke doesn't do a psychological workup of, of what's happening between John Mark's ears, but he leaves them. Paul will use the word in a couple of chapters, desert. He deserts them. He quits the mission, and he disappears. What I mean is, he disappears from the New Testament record for a few years at this point. Also notice... When he leaves them in verse 13, when he leaves them, he doesn't return to Antioch. Antioch is the church that sent them out. Antioch is the church that laid their hands on them and prayed for them. Antioch Antioch is a church that almost certainly gave them money to help support their mission. But when he deserts, he doesn't return to Antioch. He he returns to Jerusalem. Where does he go? Well, he probably goes home to mommy's house. I think this is is kind of a deal. Just imagine, imagine if this church sent out someone to assist on a a preaching trip, one commissioned by the Holy Spirit, no less. And you find out they quit a few days in, but they don't even come back and give an account to you about it. Maybe they drop you a note, but they just quit, and they run home to Mommy's house. This doesn't sit well with Antioch. It wouldn't sit well with Antioch, who had sent him out trusting he would help these men on this journey the Holy Spirit himself had commissioned. Well, John marks out of the picture for a few years. A lot happens in Acts 13, 14, and 15. But in Acts 15 and verse 36, we, uh, we meet him again. Um, he's been out of the picture. He hasn't been an issue in the, in the story because he just hasn't been around. But in Acts 15, he pops up again, and Paul has not forgotten what he did a couple of years earlier. This is Acts 15 and verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas... Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This paragraph begins with a great idea in verse 36. Um, Paul and Barnabas had come back from the first missionary journey. By the way, when they came back, they came back to Antioch, to the church that sent them, the church you're supposed to go back to. They come back from their first missionary journey. They give a full report of what God had done through them. Some time passes until in verse 36, Paul says, let's go back and visit the brethren in every city we visited. What he's saying is, guys, we're not just in the baptism business here. 
we don't just go on a little trip and baptize a bunch of people and then brag about how many people we baptize. That's not the business we're in. We're in the discipleship-making business. We're in the church business. We're in the spiritual growth business. We're in the appointing elders business. That, that's what we're up to here. So what this is, Acts 15, verse 36, this is the inception of the second missionary journey. That's what this is. Barnabas is on board, but he wants to bring along with them his little cousin, John Mark. Paul insists they don't bring him, and he keeps insisting they don't bring him, which means Barnabas keeps insisting they do bring him. Again, we don't know exactly why he left in chapter 13, but we do know what Paul thought about it. It says, Paul thought best not to take with them one who had, New American Standard says, deserted them. One who had deserted them. And what you need to notice is, this is not a simple difference of opinion. They don't just take different views and then live and let live. That's not what this is. Things get heated. Um, The word there in verse uh, 39, uh, sharp disagreement mine has, I'm told the word there uh, could be used in medical contexts to mean something like a convulsion, to mean something like a sudden and violent onset of symptoms. This is, this is, a, uh, this is a volatile disagreement. The disagreement is so sharp that not only does John Mark's desertion cause a rift in his relationship to Paul, it causes a relationship in Paul's relationship to Barnabas. That's how bad this is. They decide we can't work together anymore. And the second missionary journey is divided because of this. And just as a quick side note, you realize our actions, our actions don't just affect our relationship to other people. That's what we tend to think. Well, if I do something, then it'll mess up my relationship with other people. No, our actions can affect other people's relationship with other people. Our actions have tentacles that go everywhere for good and for ill. Our actions change the world. They don't just change my own little personal sphere. It changes everything. Well, notice Luke doesn't moralize here. He doesn't take sides. He doesn't pause and and give a little morality tale and say, well, here's who's right and here's who's wrong. He doesn't do that. Maybe that's because they both have a point. Both Paul and Barnabas have a point. Uh, As the saying goes, the worst disagreements happen when both people are in the right. In Paul's defense, the work they're about here is difficult and important. Paul is not out here running a a day camp. He's not interested in babysitting co-workers. He needs capable men with a backbone for this difficult work. And if someone has already demonstrated not to have the stomach, not to have the backbone for this, there's an argument to be made against their future inclusion. You know, Jesus said you'll know them by their fruits, and perhaps his argument is we have seen who John Mark is from his fruits. Yet Barnabas, who's advocating for John Mark, Barnabas would have had a point, too. We can imagine what he might have said. Paul himself is a demonstration of the value of second chances, isn't he? Paul himself is a demonstration of the possibility of real repentance and change, and that change can happen to people through the gospel. And at one time, you'll recall, people were awfully suspicious and unwelcoming of Paul. Until, of all people, Barnabas advocated for him. So can you imagine Barnabas perhaps saying to Paul, Paul, won't you give the same second chance you yourself received? And at this point, Paul's answer is, no, I will not. And so the second missionary journey splits up. Barnabas takes little cousin John Mark with him to Cyprus. That's where Barnabas is from. 
Paul chooses Silas to sort of take Barnabas's place, and they travel through Syria and Cilicia on the mainland, strengthening the churches. And from here, the narrative follows Paul's part of the journey. Barnabas actually disappeared from the biblical story for about two years. Not two years, we know he went this direction and that's about it. We don't hear anything else about Barnabas for about two years. John Mark, we don't hear anything from him for the next ten years. The next ten years are silent when it comes to the life of John Mark. So we fast forward ten years to Colossians chapter 4. Be turning with me there. And we come to what I believe is a redemptive resolution to this conflict. This is Colossians 4. So by the time Colossians 4 is written, we are 10 years on from the events of Acts 15. And in those 10 years, a whole lot has happened. Um, Paul, at this point in the story, is a prisoner in, in the city of Rome, for the first time at least. And while he's there, he sees fit to write a letter to the city of Colossae. And as he usually does, he ends his letters by sending greetings to the brethren and by reporting uh, the greetings that are sent from those who accompany him. And so this is at uh, Colossians 4 and verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Ten years later, Paul is a prisoner in Rome, and guess who is one of his companions? We have mentioned here in verse 10, the deserter, the little cousin, John Mark. And he even seems to in indicate there in that little parenthesis that John Mark may be entrusted with some sort of mission to the Colossians because he urges them to welcome John Mark if he visits them. By the way, something Paul himself wasn't willing to do ten years earlier, welcome Mark. He says, these men, these men I list here, these are the only men of the circumcision. These are the only Jews who are sympathetic to me. All the other Jews I seem to meet are against me and, and are persecuting me. But these men, these men are with me. A lot has happened in ten years. We know a lot of what happened to Paul during these ten years. We don't know anything that happened to John Mark during these ten years. But the one thing we know ten years later is the kind of relationship Paul and John Mark now have. I'll throw this in here as well. Philemon, the book of Philemon is written at the same time as Colossians and delivered by the hand of the same messenger to the same city in Colossae. And at the end of that letter, at the end of Philemon, he sends more greetings from many of the same men, and he says this, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner of Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Ten years earlier, Paul refused to bring John Mark along. Ten years later, he counts that same man, a fellow worker, a trusted helper, and one of the few comforts that he has. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 4 now. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Well, at this point, maybe we're still asking, maybe we're still a little suspicious. Uh, how long does this last? They reconcile in Colossians 4. How long does that last? You know, did John Mark flake out again? Well, 2 Timothy... This is written during Paul's second Roman imprisonment, years later. It's uh, almost certainly his last letter that he writes. 
we're about 20 years on since Peter's release from prison in Acts 12. Since Acts 12 to the writing of 2 Timothy is about 20 years have passed from those two, two events. And Paul knows that this is the end for him. He says things like this in this letter. He says, I'm ready to be offered. He says, my time of, the time of my departure is at hand. He's literally about to have his head chopped off. And so these words really amount to his last will and testament. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 9. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 9. He says to Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Do you pick up there's a note of desperation here? He desperately wants to see Timothy again. And this desire is intensified by the fact that he's been deserted. Again, like John Mark did, he's been deserted. Now, in the case of Crescens and Titus, it seems they're excused absences. They've gone on to do work elsewhere. But in the case of Demas, it's just an outright desertion. He had loved the world. He has gone there instead of being with Paul. Only Luke is with me, he says, and I'd love to see Timothy again, but that's not all. Picking up in verse 11, get Mark. Bring him with you, for he is very useful to me and for ministry. Remember, in his first Roman imprisonment, Colossians 4, he had John Mark by his side. A few years later, in his second Roman imprisonment, on the brink of death, he wants John Mark with him again. So John Mark turns out to be a surprisingly crucial figure in the story of Paul. I didn't pick up on this until I prepared this lesson. And I prepared this lesson, frankly, because when I preached in Tyler on Wednesday, they told me to preach on John Mark. So that's the reason I I ran this down. John Mark is a helper, invited along on the first missionary journey, who then deserted, ran home to mommy's house, was the cause of division, and then years later becomes so intimately associated with Paul and trusted that Paul chooses to send him to the Colossian church on his behalf And then when Paul faces death, the one person he asks to come in addition to Timothy is John Mark. From distrusted deserter to trusted representative to intimate friend. To put it it another way, Paul's conversion is so important in the story of Acts, it's literally repeated three times at length. Paul's conversion is recounted three whole times in the book of Acts. Paul's conversion is central to this story. Paul is a walking billboard advertising God's grace. To understand Paul's story is to understand the transformation that's possible through the gospel. But you know, nestled inside this story of Paul's redemption are a hundred other stories of redemption. When Paul preaches the same message that saved him, other people are saved. And so nestled inside Paul's redemption story are a hundred other redemption stories. The redemption story of a merchant of purple named Lydia. The redemption of a jailer from Philippi. Or the redemption of a tag-along cousin of Barnabas from Jerusalem who flakes out on the first missionary journey. If Paul can be redeemed, if Paul can be reconciled to his brethren, if Paul can be used by God, then so can John Mark. That's one thing we learn from him. Well, let's bring it to a, a final uh, conclusion The final thing I want to say about John Mark, what he turns out to be, is a servant of the word. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 5. So recall, the very beginning of the John Mark story involves his mother's house, where Peter comes after being released from prison in Acts 12. There's some kind of John Mark-Peter connection from that early story. I think there must be. 
But that is not the last time those two men, Peter and John Mark, are connected. This is 1 Peter 5 and verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Peter is thought to be writing this epistle from Rome to other Roman disciples and others beyond. And so he writes here, she who is at Babylon sends you greetings. She, probably meaning the church, who is at Babylon, which is probably code for Rome, sends you greetings. And so the greetings extend from the church in Rome to the other churches that will read this letter. And then he says, and so does Mark. And it is widely agreed this is the same John Mark we have been reading about this whole time. That same guy is with Peter, who Peter, by the way, calls him my son, which might be an indication that John Mark came to Christ through Peter's preaching way back, perhaps prior to Acts chapter 12. So what may have happened something, is something like this. After Paul left his first imprisonment in Rome, where John Mark was with him, after he had been there with Mark, after he had written Colossians and Philemon, Paul was let out of prison. He left Rome. He'd be back, of course, in a Roman prison cell in a few years. But in that middle period, according to accounts of history outside of the Bible, because, again, we don't know what happens to Peter much after Acts 12, but in that middle period, according to history, Peter goes to Rome, and Peter writes an epistle. And while Peter is there, he sends his greetings he says, and then he says, and so does Mark, my son. He also sends his greetings. John Mark is with Peter when he writes this epistle. All of that I find very interesting. It's interesting to see how close a connection he has with both Peter and Paul. But I think this connection matters for an even deeper reason than that. Now, at this point, I'm going to make a point that, uh, that relies on the testimony of early Christian writers from the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Now, these writers are not authoritative in the way Scripture is. But I will say, if, if there is any value at all in listening to these writers, and if these writers are in uniform agreement about something, and if what they're in uniform agreement about harmonizes with Scripture, I think there is value to hearing them. So hear them. It is widely agreed by these early texts that the Gospel of Mark is written by this same man, John Mark, and that the stories John Mark narrates in that gospel come chiefly from the eyewitness testimony of Peter. So the prologue of Luke, do you remember the first couple of verses of the gospel of Luke? Luke says he composed his gospel through compiling the testimony of eyewitnesses. There is responsible historical investigation happening, rigorous historical investigation. Luke says, that's how I've composed my gospel. And if the same is true, as, if the same is true of Mark then Peter is widely agreed to be the chief witness he relies on. Testimony to this fact is uniform in the first few centuries. So there was a guy named Polycarp. Polycarp was, uh, personally knew the apostle John. He had a student named Papias, and Papias wrote this. He said, Mark, who was an interpreter of Peter, wrote with exactness. He calls Mark the interpreter of of Peter, who recorded the uh, memories of Peter. Justin Martyr, uh, at the very beginning of the second century, about the year 100, Justin Martyr, in his famous dialogue with Trypho, speaks of the memoirs of Peter as being the Gospel of Mark. When you read the Gospel of Mark, you are reading, in a sense, the memoirs of Peter. He says Mark composed it in Rome after 
uh, at the end of Peter's life and after the death of Peter. When you keep going, Irenaeus, circa 200, Origen, 230, Clement, 300, Eusebius, 362, all of them say the same thing. Here, here's just a quote from Eusebius describing, describing this um, connection between Mark and Peter. He said, So great a light of religion shone upon the minds of the hearers of Peter that they were not satisfied with a single hearing or with the unwritten teaching of the divine proclamation, but with all kinds of entreaties urged Mark, whose gospel is extant, seeing that he was a follower of Peter, to leave them in writing a record of the teaching transmitted to them orally. Nor did they cease until they had prevailed upon the man, and so they became responsible humanly for the scripture that is called the gospel according to Mark. So I think we we can be grateful for the restored relationship between Paul and John Mark. That's a very interesting story. And I think there's a lot to think about there in, in the example it leaves us. But I dare say the longest last, lasting legacy of John Mark comes through the gospel he wrote. The true authentic work of this man, helped by the eyewitness testimony of Peter, and of course ultimately inspired by the Holy Spirit. Because it is through that work that we have a revelation of the life, the ministry, teaching, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is through that work that we have the gospel story that changed Peter and gave him a second chance, that changed Paul and gave him a second chance, and changed John Mark and gave him a second chance. Each of these three men failed in spectacular ways in the New Testament. In the pages of the New Testament records their failure. And then subsequently, each of those men redeemed reconciled, and then used by God. So in order to tell the story of the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth, you've got to tell the story of Peter and Paul. They are the main characters in the story. But in order to tell the story of Peter and Paul, you need to know something about John Mark. His story tells us failure need not be final. Sin can be repented of, and it doesn't have to be wallowed in. They teach us reconciliation with our brethren is possible. Even if the disagreement is very sharp, reconciliation is possible. And that God can use ordinary and even flawed vessels to carry on his precious word. And so we end by saying, by asking, do you need to be redeemed and reconciled by this gospel whose story, Gospel of Mark, recounts? The story of Jesus coming to earth, teaching us how to live dying for our sins, being raised in victory, and then inviting us to share in that victory. We too can be buried with Christ and raised to walk a new life. And that's what we invite you to do right now as we stand and sing.